Welcome to Asia Rising, the podcast of Latrobe Asia, where we discuss the news, events, and general happenings of Asia's states and societies. I'm your host, Nick Bisley, the Executive Director of Latrobe Asia. The South China Sea is one of the world's most important waterways. It connects the major economies of Northeast Asia with energy from the Persian Gulf, commodities from Australia and Africa, and of course links the people of Japan, China and Korea with the societies of Southeast Asia and beyond. The sea is also the subject of significant and long-running disputes about just who owns the thousands of islands and features that dot the body of water, and who has the right to exploit the sea's rich natural resources, both its fisheries and hydrocarbon reserves. In recent years, this dispute has become especially heated, with China's land reclamation program turning a number of reefs and atolls into a series of artificial islands comprising nearly 3,000 acres, complete with three-kilometre-long runways and deep-water ports. In response, the United States has sought to publicly shame China and has also deployed the US Navy in an attempt to show Beijing that Washington means business. Most recently, this has involved the dispatch of an aircraft carrier battle group to the contested areas. Many fear that this dispute could escalate into outright conflict, while others see it as a harbinger of a more unpleasant future in which the peace and prosperity enjoyed by Asia's peoples over the past 30 or so years is replaced by a risky long-term strategic arm wrestle between the region's major powers. Joining us on today's podcast to discuss the South China Sea disputes is Dr Ewan Graham, the Director of the International Security Programme at the Lowy Institute for International Policy in Sydney. Welcome to the podcast, Ewan. Hello, Nick. Nice to be with you. Thanks. Well, let's start with the sort of basics, um, because it's a bit complex and a bit messy. What's the dispute constituted of, and and what's at stake? Well, for analysts like us, it's the dispute that keeps on giving, because (laughs) the beauty of the South China Sea is it cuts across so many fields. Strategy is obviously there, and become more central, I think, in the last few years. There's a military strategic component to that. It's a large body of deep water within the so-called first island chain. So that gives it importance for the Chinese Navy and others who are operating submarines in increasing numbers around that uh, area. Energy, it often gets compared to the Persian Gulf. Little evidence to actually back that up. But there is obviously a lot of energy that's already been brought out around the periphery, particularly the southern periphery of the South China Sea. Brunei as a state really owes its existence to uh, that South China Sea energy, Malaysia, um, Indonesia, uh, but China too has also been taking out energy from um, that peripheral area. The big caveat on that is that there's not much evidence yet geologically to back up claims of energy around the actual disputed Spratly Islands or the Paracels themselves. You've also got, um, as you mentioned in the intro, it's a major throughfare for merchant marine trade manufacturers basically going from North Asia to Europe through the South China Sea and the raw materials and energy from the Middle East passing up to those resource deficient economies. That includes China, the big shift in the last 20 years. China used to export oil. Now, of course, it it takes in more than half of it, most through the South China Sea. So you have that. And then if you like at a kind of symbolic level, it's taken on an extra meaning, I think, in recent years as a sort of... uh, a totem between the US and China, and it's become a kind of symbol of who's up, who's down, and uh, as a symbol of where Asia's strategic future lies. It's a disputed frontier between Southeast Asia and China. Most of the land borders, to China's credit, have been settled, including with Vietnam. But the big ambiguity about what the so-called nine or ten dash line, it does have a tenth added now outside of Taiwan, has been, I think, a root of a lot of the concerns and trouble that in recent years has uh, brought employment to you and I. So you've got an issue that's about a range of things. It's about 
military influence and strategy. It's about the flow of energy and resources. It's about the access to resources. But it's also about maybe the revival of kind of old-fashioned sentiments around geopolitics and spheres of influence and, and the like. But it's an old dispute. I mean, its origins go back to the murkiness that's created by imperialism, Japanese imperialism, European imperialism, and just who owned what bits of land prior to the arrival of um, Europeans and others. And yet it comes and goes in the heat that's in the dispute. So why has it become so hot now? You could also say that uh, it's a philosophical dispute about what constitutes <coughs> the sea. Is it an extension of territory? Is it something that can be divided up and owned exclusively? terms of the oil and gas and fish and food resources that are taken out of it maybe that's partly why it's it's furred up because the economic drivers are there it's much more important to the coastal countries than it used to be vietnam has become a significant exporter of, uh, of oil that was not the case 20 years ago and it owes entirely to the south china sea the philippines is also late to the game but now extracting gas. Of course, those economies are growing. Population is growing. They all need energy. And the South China Sea is one obvious way to fulfill that supply. But we've also got, I think, the strategic element. And it's not just exclusively a US-China dimension. Of course, it cuts across the Southeast Asia-China relationship, particularly spoiling between the rival territorial claimants. But because the US-China relationship, I think, has taken on a, an element of overt strategic competition, that, I think, is the dominant factor that's put it in the headlights and forced the Southeast Asians into the position that you often hear they, the last thing they want to do is to have to make a choice between one or the other. A song that we're used to here in Australia hearing that we don't want to have to choose between the United States and, and China. But why do you think it is that as a sort of subject of rivalry between China and the United States, this has become the sort of totem or the symbol of this that a few years ago it hadn't. Is it American weakness? Is it Chinese ambition? Is it what's going on in China? Is it some combination of these things that's driving it? Well, let's take the sort of trigger point, which I would identify as being around 2008, 2009. Up until that point, the South China Sea, as you say, it's always been there in the background, but the tensions could be handled. That is an extension of the ASEAN-China relationship. It was optimistically regarded that declaration on the code of conduct and the code of conduct while not producing particularly spectacular confidence building results were nonetheless on the right track to managing that competition and tension with a, a rising power. What changed? Well I think China's behavior has changed. It's become more obviously nationalistic. Sovereignty has become much more at the forefront of what China says matters to it most. That's become officially more evident since um, President Xi became anointed as the leader. But I think even before then, we've seen there is a, a nationalist action reaction that's certainly been observed throughout the region, that sovereignty is the big immovable object. It's very difficult for leaders who depend on more populist positions to row back from that. And there's a ratcheting effect that makes sovereignty the big obstacle to what otherwise is economically a very good news story. The flip side to that is that that very wealth has allowed countries also to invest increasingly in defense resources. China has led the pack very much in terms of the scale and, uh, and uh, direction of its spending with a particular maritime naval focus. And that's been, I think, a source of a lot of the concern on the Southeast Asian side that China has grown so quickly that 
in its mentality, it still sees itself very much as a historically victimized power. But the lag is not fully realized in Beijing that uh, whatever you do as a great power, people will always put a strategic reading on that. Southeast Asians like to say that they want to avoid making an exclusive choice between the United States and China, but it's also not a bad place to be as long as you can control that rivalry and make sure that it's benign. It's actually been a rather successful game that Southeast Asian countries individually, collectively, have been able to play. Yeah, so I mean, it's an old puzzle slash opportunity risk for smaller players as you can take advantage of major power competition, you can play them off against one another to your advantage, but it comes with with very real risk. The question of sovereignty, I think, is quite an interesting one where we saw in late 2012 when China issued that new passport, which included in it the map of China the size of a postage stamp, and included on it is the nine-dash line, complete with little dots of the Spratly Islands, which, you know, frankly, you couldn't see even if you were sitting on top of them. Indeed, that's something that's also changed. I talked about a kind of ratcheting effect when you attach yourself to a nationalist narrative. For China, obviously, Xinjiang, Tibet, Taiwan, these are core concerns, large populations involved, regardless of whatever position you take on the legitimacy of of the sovereignty claim. They are inherently very different and operate on a much more emotive level than a dispute over you know what are unoccupied scraps of territory so in that sense there was a a, i think a real material difference but now i think it would be much more difficult for china to row back from the description of south china sea uh, and the spratly islands as a as a so-called core concern and in fact we talk about the facts on the water or the facts on the ground The, the other big striking change of course is the fact that a lot of concrete has been poured in the last two years and what were scraps no bigger than the table that we're around at the moment now are capable of hosting runways and other military infrastructure. So that's uh, very reminiscent of the way that socialist societies tend to operate. It's an engineering solution to a problem. I think it's no coincidence that the striking solution, it's rather like going almost back to the Great Wall. If you have insecurity, build a wall. Build something big. Or else, um, if you don't have any islands in the first island chain, Make them. Make them. And I think there was that line that uh, Admiral Harry Harris said about this time last year to say, you know, China's making a great wall of sand in the South China Sea. Certainly from, I think, most external observers, China seems to be the principal catalyst in the dispute in, in recent years. And certainly most visibly, as you said, with the island building program that's occurred over the past 18 months or so. What does China want in the South China Sea? China famously been kind of officially ambiguous, you know, it's never sat down and said really clearly and unambiguously, this is what we want. In contrast, say, to, for example, with the Vietnamese and the, the Philippines who've lodged with UNCLOS what it is that they're claiming. So what's your take on what China wants? Well, as you say, it's held deliberately ambiguous in a sense. And perhaps that's the way that a polity as large and unruly as China is ruled through the ambiguity of top-down slogans which are left for subordinates to interpret. It's often been talked about that there's an internal competition between various agencies that's played a, uh, a role in China, either in terms of loose cannons of ship captains who are freelancing, or at the higher level, the military which is trying to get a, a larger slice of the fiscal pie and using the South China Sea as its main ammunition to do that. 
There may be an element of that, but I think that's also changed in the last two or three years. There's a clear sense that even if it's slogans, that there is still a very centralised directive coming right from the top in which uh, sovereignty protection is now a, a much larger part of what uh, defines China's legitimacy. I talked earlier about the military strategic element. I think that is also a very real part of how the South China Sea has played an increased role in Chinese thinking because it is important for the Chinese Navy as an area to operate. There may be a sort of strategically defensive element to that in that geography doesn't favor China. It's difficult for China's surface fleet aircraft submarines to break out beyond that so-called first island chain. If those islands weren't there, then it would be rather different dynamic. So geography still plays a role. Put yourself in Chinese eyes if you're looking out from that uh, eastern seaboard where all of your wealth and your vulnerabilities uh, and your uh, economic future lie. It does look like a key strategic challenge. One way around that is to keep external navies and air forces at a distance. The permanent statement that those concrete outposts make a thousand miles away from Hainan is that this is an increasing area in which China sees itself, even if it's not explicit, as the primus inter pares, and that foreign navies will have to increasingly make their peace with China if they're to be allowed to continue to operate as they believe they have a legal right to do. That's probably a useful step to what's been occurring sort of in response to what China's been doing, particularly the, the island building. This is the um, Freedom of Navigation Operations, or FUNOPS, as they're wonderfully known. We've seen America undertake a number of them. Just briefly for the listeners, you know, what is a Freedom of Navigation Operation? Why is this a response? And then how effective they've been of being a response to what it is that China's been doing. Right. And this gets to what we haven't covered so far, which is the US motivation for putting more emphasis on the South China Sea. Since 2010, since uh, Hillary Clinton, when she was Secretary of State, made a a voluble intervention at the ASEAN summit in, in Hanoi and identified US national interests being at stake. That itself is not new, but a much more emphatic message than previously. The US feels that it has moral high ground here. Now, I know that many will say that there's an important caveat there because the US itself has not signed up UN Law of the Sea Treaty, but certainly in terms of the way that the government behaves and the Navy behaves, it scrupulously adheres to its provisions. And it's on that legal basis that the Freedom of Navigation program operates not just in the South China Sea, but worldwide since the late 1970s in a fairly low-key way. Many people hadn't heard of it until last year because by design, its concept behind freedom of navigation is that it makes a point, but it doesn't militarize or provoke uh, a strategic response from the countries whose excessive claims are being tested. And that includes U.S. allies. I mean, the U.S. has done freedom of navigation operations even against Japan. So it's not a question of just singling out China. That's, of course, the theory. In practice, the strategic dynamic and the competition that overlays the US-China relationship means it's very difficult to disentangle that baggage. That's the dance that the US is trying to do. It's a very difficult one to find the balance in. The US, I think, did itself few favors in the way that the messaging around the first freedom of navigation operation last October was handled. U.S. had trailed its intention to fly and sail wherever international law permitted, but it took a very long time to actually uh, do anything formally about it. 
Um, so in that sense, it made it an issue of US credibility, which is unfortunate because the Freedom of Navigation um, program really should, as far as possible, to be effective, be divorced from that extra motivation. But we live in the world that we do. Um, US is obviously a, a complex decision-making process in its own right, sometimes embarrassingly open in terms of its internal differences and uh, leaks and counter-leaks. But I think on balance something is better than nothing. I think the South China Sea, the key question people ask, is it worth the candle? Well, it's a very significant body of water. In scale terms, the comparison is sometimes made to the Mediterranean, but to see overflight and military access in such a large area would, I think, be a very significant uh, and retrograde step. So far, the two operations that have been done have been done very cautiously, not to get too into the weeds the details, but they've been so-called innocent passage freedom of uh, navigation operations. A lot more circumspect in terms of what the actual ships are doing when they're going within 12 nautical miles and implicitly recognizing the territorial sea around them, which some have said has actually sent a, a counterproductive message given that China and no other Southeast Asian country has formally declared the territorial sea around the Spratly Islands. But nonetheless, we see in that, I think, an attempt by the United States to find a balance between doing enough to make the moral high ground point, to demonstrate to China that there is a contestability around the creeping jurisdiction that uh, has now made challenges, at least by radio, commonplace, shadowing of US vessels that pass through the South China Sea by Chinese civil and military ships a necessity. But on the other hand, I think the US has also very clearly been trying to manage its China relationship, not to make it a single issue, not to turn it into that kind of circular self-feeding action reaction that many have warned about in terms of handing China a pretext to advance its militarization or to genuinely feed its security dilemma. So I guess you've got, on the one hand, China that says it's a core interest akin to Tibet, Taiwan, Xinjiang. On the other hand, you've got the United States that says it's a vital national interest. The status quo that used to exist remains. How do we reconcile these two things? Can some sort of modus vivendi be established, particularly given, I think, both practically and politically, there's no way China can step back from what it's done so far. Well, you make an assumption there that China won't move back, but I question that. <clears throat> I mean, it may be the case that the concrete can't be unpoured, that those structures won't be taken down. But let's take China's position on the Philippine legal case, which is also a major live development. The Philippines has uh, launched a case through the International Tribunal of the, of the Law of the Sea, not to contest China's sovereignty per se, but to get a ruling from an international court about what the status of those features within the so-called nine-dash line, because that's the one area that is the shakiest in terms of international law. Now, China's been very clear in saying that it, it won't participate in the case. But if you talk to Southeast Asian observers, once the ruling is out, whether China will be able to completely ignore it, or whether it will inform in time their negotiating position, there may be some daylight and I think that's one of the optimistic sides about how the South China Sea uh, is progressing. It's not all towards a doom-laden scenario, but it gets, as with all things, I think ultimately to a judgment about the nature of the Chinese government, 
state and its strategic intentions. If the intention is to wholly develop a kind of fortress China with a moat around it defined by the East China and South China Seas, then there may be no resiling from those positions. But if there is also a learning curve that China is on, not operating just as a regional navy, but as a global navy, in which it will also acquire the similar interests to those of the United States in terms of maintaining its access to the territorial waters of other countries, a compromise, not on the basis of coercion from the outside community, but a realization of China's national interests also being at stake. And if that sounds optimistic, the Soviet Union went through something rather similar. And it's a reason why the Soviet Navy and the US Navy in the end were able to reach agreement on something like the Incidents at Sea Agreement, ideologically opposed, but nonetheless able to reach that operational modus vivendi. If I look at China's calculations now, it may be that this year is deemed the year in which to to press because next year we'll have whoever's in charge in the White House, probably a more assertive US policy, and also that Philippine case. So there may be a short-term impetus now to lock in gains as far as possible, and I think that matches a lot of the behavior that we've seen. It's a live issue, and very grateful to have Ewan's long experience shedding some light on this most complex and interesting part of, of Asia. Thanks, Ewan, for being part of the program. It's a great pleasure. Uh, you can follow Ewan Graham on Twitter at Graham underscore Ewan, that's G-R-A-H-A-M underscore E-U-A-N, or me at Nick Bisley. You've been listening to Asia Rising, a podcast of Latrobe Asia. If you like this podcast, you can subscribe to Asia Rising on iTunes or SoundCloud. And while you're there, do leave a rating and a review to help us spread the word. Thanks for listening.